Lord, help us today to <clears throat> be humble before you, Lord, with a, uh, just a very difficult text of scripture, Lord, that sometimes just it's hard to even imagine or comprehend, and yet, Lord, you have included in, in this, uh, this outlay of, of, of instruction and guidance for your people and ultimately for us, and so, Lord, we need to take it seriously, and we need to allow it to impact us, Lord, as you would have it do. And so, Lord, allow us to be humble, to be teachable. Allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful to you, and that you would be, uh, Lord, just speaking through my lips to bring glory to yourself. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I am a fan. When I have the opportunity, uh, when there is uh, time, which doesn't come too often, but I'm a fan of uh, of reading novels, in particular in the genre of historical fiction. Um, I love Bernard Cornwell, um, Con Igledon, um, a couple of the guys that, that I read, um, and they have the habit in their stories of telling their story through the lens of a particular character. So, for example, the, there might be like the Battle of Trafalgar, and they'll have a particular character that they will be telling the story through, but they're using the events of history in the story and they weave this character through that story and so you learn about history while you're reading this novel. It becomes something really exciting. Um, and then at the end of the book, typically, there is this, this little section, it's called historical note. And what they will do is they will tell you um, what historical facts were true, what actual characters were true in the story and what they actually did and why they did it. They'll tell you where they took some uh, some license in the story to make sure their character worked and that kind of stuff. And I always found it to be very, very interesting. To, you know, it's almost a sense I want to finish the story, but I also want to get to the historical note because uh, that really kind of clarifies for me what actually happened in history. And there's a sense in which when we come to this passage, in particular uh, chapter 21 through 24, that the, the narrator of First and Second Samuel is is really giving us a, a punchline, so to speak, uh, reflecting on the life of David. Because what we have here is not um, a chronolo chronological story or a chronological event. In fact, we have six vignettes in these chapters that really are used by the narrator to summarize why David is Israel's king and how he is different from Saul and how God raised him up. And um, it's really a powerful section of scripture, and really it gives us these, these, these different vignettes to, to look at. And so as you, uh, as you look up on the screen, this is kind of how it's outlined, um, and you can just write in there the word wrath, because that's really how this begins, and it's also how it ends. And this is written what's called a chiasm, which means that, that it's kind of moving from the outside to the inside, and the main ultimate focal point of uh, this section of, of, of I'm going to say 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, because at one time there were one book, um, are these two uh, uh, points of, of poetry that we have in chapter 22 and 23, David's song of praise and David's last words. And we'll get to that, but just notice that the, David's last words are significant from a Christological perspective. And you will see that as we get there. Um, but today we want to focus in on uh, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 21. And what we'll see here is God's wrath revealed, um, expressed, 
um, showered on the people of Israel, his chosen people, and we'll see uh, that it's all about a broken covenant um, as well as you'll see in this a kept covenant. And it's really uh, quite an incredible story. And so for this morning, I would like for us to think about the text that we have read through this particular lens and understand that, that, that this is kind of driving this section, this few verses, the consistency of our God to keep his covenant promises. Now just think about that. God is a God, when he promises, he will do what he says, right? And it says here, to honor his name. Now we usually think about this in terms of God providing blessing for us. But God being consistent in the keeping of his promises and in the maintaining the honor of his name also has to be consistent in keeping those promises when people rebel and violate the covenant. He is our great, consistent covenant God. You understand that? We don't usually think of it in those terms. We usually think of, of it in the, in the positive terms, but as we come to this text, we will see how this unflo- uh, unfolds in a negative sense. And there, there are four words that kind of will tie this together. Kindness, seriousness, wrath, and then compassion as we work through this text. So first of all, I want us to consider the kindness of God's revelation. The kindness of God's revelation. Now we might at the outset, having read this passage, um, just miss the point because of the goriness of this text. I don't know if you caught that. I think if you were reading along, you certainly caught how gory it is. But we need to take a moment here to notice the kindness extended to David at the outset of this text. Notice verse one. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year. It just kind of gives you the sense of this is, this is going on a long time. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And again, we could just breeze through here and miss the kindness of God's revelation. What is the crisis that's going on here? First of all, the problem was a famine, a three-year ongoing famine. Now, there seemed to be something different about this particular famine. It wasn't any ordinary famine, if there is such a thing as an ordinary famine. But it would seem that there was some deeper cause or deeper reason for uh, the, the famine that they were going through. Now, you know, in our context, I've heard people say, you know, Christians have been praying uh, for the, the, the drought here in California. And we're experiencing the answer to our prayers right now. And before long, the government's going to be saying, hey, Christians, can you please either stop praying or change your prayers, right? Because there's enough water already, all right? Now, I say that in jest, but there's there's something here that David recognizes is deeper than just a common famine, just a common changing of the seasons, and sometimes there's dry times, and sometimes there's, there's plentiful times. There's something more going on. So who knows what it might be? Um, has, has David done something to stir up the wrath of God against himself? Has Israel violated some commandment of the Lord? And certainly famine was often 
the curse given to those who violated God's covenant. So who knows what's going on? Well, uh, so David, then not knowing the reason, sought the face of the Lord. And when you seek the face of God, you're more likely to receive light than darkness. You're more likely to get clarity for what's going on, and certainly that's what happens with David. God, in his kindness, reveals to David the source of the problem. He says, there is blood guilt on Saul, on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So this is the reason, then, for the famine. The blood guilt that now was the result of Saul and his behavior toward the Gibeonites. In particular, blood guilt is code for someone has broken a covenant. And Saul has broken a covenant that was made between Israel and the Gibeonite people. And so that, we would say, then, is the cause. Saul, the king of Israel, the choice of the people, the one that they wanted to be king because he was like the kings of the nations around. He was the kind of king that could, could lead armies into battle. And he ends up violating this covenant that Israel had made between Israel and the Gibeonite people. Now, who are the Gibeonites? Good question. Uh, You have to go back to Joshua chapter 9 to understand that, but to help us along, notice what happens, the narrator reminds us a little bit about the story. So in verse 2, now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, there's that covenant, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So the, not only does the, the, the narrator give us the context, he also clarifies for us that the Gibeonites were not part of the people of Israel. And if you went back to Joshua 9 and you read the story, you would find out that, that Joshua and his armies had come into the land. They were, they were destroying cities, in particular the city of Ai, and the Gibeonites were shrewd, and they basically pretended to, to, to look like they were sojourners from another country, and they came seeking help, and the Israelites said, who are you? And they said, hey, we're not people from this land, we're people from another land, we're traveling through, and so they did not kill off the Gibeonites like they were killing off other people, and they fooled Israel to make this covenant together. And then it was made clear that this was This is all a feigned thing, but because a covenant was made, Joshua would not put his hands on the Gibeonites. There was a promise, there was a covenant, there was a pledge now between Israel and the Gibeonites, okay? So, having said all that, when Saul was king over Israel, back in 1 Samuel, in his zeal for Israel, he sought to wipe out the Gibeonites and so violated Israel's oath toward the Gibeonite people. Now please understand this. When one swears an oath in God's name, it means that those swearing that oath are asking God to be the judge of the covenant, to bring curses um, of the covenant upon them if they fail to keep that covenant, or to maintain peace uh, when they are maintaining that covenant. And that's exactly what we have happening here. Saul, in his fervor for Israel, violated the covenant between Israel and Gibeon. And as a result, there is famine in the land. As a result of this blood guilt, God is now pouring out his wrath on Israel um, as, a, as, as a, I want to say, the answer 
to the curse that was promised because of that covenant. And so what we're reading here, though, is all a part of God's kindness. You say, what do you mean? What is this? What's kind about this? What's kind about this is that David doesn't know why there is a famine in the land, but he goes to God and he asks the question, and what does God do? He reveals to him the answer. Now, friends, this is really important. Our God, the God that we worship, the God that we serve, does not rejoice about, you know, he's not dancing around in heaven saying, see, I kept them in the dark again. Isn't that great? Oh, they're going to have to figure this one out all by themselves. No. He's a God who has revealed himself and wants to reveal himself. And that is a kindness by God for us. Now David knows the reason. There is guilt, and this guilt is, is, is a blood guilt. David knows the solution. Israel's guilt must be atoned for. So God in his kindness doesn't leave man in the dark. He shows us how we violate his will. He demonstrates how man pursues his own agenda against God. He reveals man's darkness, sinfulness, and his utter hopelessness. And friends, that is a kindness. Now, you might be under the preaching or the teaching of God's word, and you may not like to hear those things. You may not like it when God says, this is who you are in all your sinfulness, in all your rebellion. You might say, that's such a harsh message. Why can't there be some grace and some love? But you understand that that the wrath of God or the clarity of God about man's condition is the beginning of of the whole process of bringing you to a place where you can understand grace. Without understanding your condition, grace doesn't mean anything. And so God is kind to say, this is your actual condition. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, and this is your solution. Here's David trying to figure out what's going on. He recognizes they are guilty, the nation is guilty, in particular Saul is guilty, and there, ne- there needs to be atonement for that sin so that that covenant can be restored, can be satisfied. Which brings us then to the second thing. Kindness of God's revelation, now the seriousness of God's name. Swearing an oath in God's name and violating it discredits God's reputation. It says that God cannot be depended on, that his word means or guarantees nothing. It literally means to take God's name in vain. And when you take God's name in vain, you're basically taking his name and you're trampling on it. You are making it dirt. You're making it like mud. You're making it worthless. And God takes seriously the breaking of his covenant. So the the problem has been made clear by God. There's blood guilt on the part of Israel because of Saul. And so the problem now is God's name has been trampled in the mud, dragged through the mud, but what's to be done about it? Well, I want you to notice how in this passage Saul then is brought up. He is the covenant breaker. David seeks to restore or atone for the covenant that Saul has broken. And so he asks two questions. Here's question number one. What shall I do for you? And the Gibeonites kind of speak in somewhat vague terms, but they throw out some kind of a a hint there. 
um, they say, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and uh, us and Saul or his house, neither is, is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. In other words, they're bringing up Saul, but they're not saying specifically what they're expecting as it relates to Saul, what he has done. Well, we don't have any authority. You're the one that has authority. And so David hears this, and he says, okay, let me ask another question. It's the same question, put in a different form, or maybe added with a couple of words there. What do you say that I shall do for you? And of course, they, they continue to talk, and they say, the man who consumed us, speaking of Saul, and planned to destroy us, again, speaking of Saul, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. You see, it was Saul that had consumed them, that sought to destroy them. It was Saul who wanted to be sure that the Gibeonites had no place in Israel. And so without saying his name, really specifically, they call for atonement through sacrifice. The covenant is broken and would be reconciled with the death of seven of his sons. Now, David answers, and you might think he would answer something different, but he says, I will give them. (laughs) I will give them. Now, we who live in the 21st century, we read something like this, and we really have difficulty in putting all this together. We tend to think like the U.S. congressman who asked, why is it that Arabs and Jews cannot settle their differences like good Christians? (laughs) See, we we have this perspective that we just cannot wrap our, our minds around this kind of situation. But Saul was a covenant breaker, and his descendants would pay the price for his sins. Now, two reasons stand out in this text. Number one, Saul's butchery of the Gibeonite people had polluted the land with their blood. Notice what it says in, in uh, Numbers 35, 33. It says, for the blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. Secondly, Saul's butchery had violated a covenant oath. An oath had been cut literally. So what, that, what happened with, with a covenant is, a, is an animal was brought, it was cut in half, its pieces were spread on either side, and as you made that covenant with the person, you too would walk through that sacrifice and that setting, and what you're saying by walking through there that says, if I violate this covenant with you, may I be like this animal. So those are pretty tough words, right? That's a pretty strong commitment. So maybe we should, maybe we should do that at, at wedding ceremonies now. I don't know. It would be, be kind of fun, right? You know, so all right, who's, all right, who's starting to, to bring them? Bring the goat in. We'll cut that up, and then we'll... I think that would probably end up in some protests or something like that. But, but the seriousness of it, this is what it meant, right? So in a covenant, there would be a covenant blessing if the covenant was kept. In a covenant, there would be a covenant curse if the covenant was violated. The pieces would be a picture then of what would happen if you violated that covenant. So now the Gibeonites are calling in their covenant obligation. It's kind of been on hold for a while. 
I mean, we can say for three years there's been famine. That's God's judgment. That's God's wrath on the people because of breaking the covenant. But the Gibeonites now are saying, wait a second, now's our opportunity. We're calling this in. The curse of the covenant demanded to be carried out on the offending party. You see, covenant matters to those making the covenant and to God. The curse of the covenant must be carried out. See, in today's world, everyone would say, oh, no, no, you really don't need to carry it out, which really makes a covenant worthless, right? If it's only good on the positive side and it's not good on the negative side, then what's the point in having a covenant? Again, this is hard for us to swallow because it seems to violate even passages like Deuteronomy 26, 16, which say this, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, which we're all thankful for, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You say, well, that seems to contradict what's potentially happening here in this story. So is what happens next justice, or is it David stepping outside of his freedoms as a king to really do what he wants. Some have argued that David really is the culprit here. They said that David actually has misinterpreted what God wants and what desires and what's really happening here, and he is the one who's at fault. But that would be a rewriting of the text. Others have argued that, that Gibeon never really came over to the Jewish side, and as a result of that, this is just an example of their paganism being fleshed out and in other words, this was simply a pagan request for a pagan response to the famine. In other words, this, wasn't a, this wasn't, wasn't, had nothing to do with the God of Israel. It had to do everything with pagan thinking. But again, you have to deal with the text. And in the text, verse 14 clarifies the result that after all this was done, what did God do? He brought health to the land. He brought peace to the land. The land, once again, was, was flourishing. This certainly was something that God was taking seriously. And so the bottom line is we just don't like bloody and brutal passages like this. So we try to reason them away and out of the scriptures. And in so doing, we, 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 we risk losing the heart and the character of God. God is a God who keeps his promises. A covenant kept leads to blessing in this case, a blessing on the land, a covenant violated, leads to cursing. In this case, a famine on the land. So keep a covenant and you will be, continue to be blessed by God. Violate a covenant and you will be cursed by God. This is the seriousness of God's name. Now with regard to Deuteronomy 24, 16, let me just say this. The context of that was individual behavior. What we have going on in this passage wasn't just Saul's individual behavior. He's acting as a king. He's acting as a representative of the nation. This was a national issue, and that's why God is inflicting this on the nation. And it requires then a national response. So Saul, being the leader of Israel at the time, was going to bear the weight of responsibility for Israel's actions. But he's gone. He's dead. What do you do? And that's where they say, well, we want seven sons of Saul. Now, we don't have any historical record of this. But it is possible, 
and very likely that these seven sons were actually part of the armies that carried out the orders of their father. So there could be certainly a connection that doesn't necessarily justify or unjustify it. It is at least a, a worthwhile historical note that would lead credence to what's going on here. So we have this Saul being a covenant breaker, but notice now we have David. And David, we see, unlike Saul, is a covenant keeper. And just notice this. Look at verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And so Mephibosheth was not even considered to be one that was offered here as a sacrifice because he was protected by the covenant that David made with Jonathan. Saul is willing to break covenant. And what we're seeing here and what the author, the writer of this is wanting us to see is that David is not like Saul. He's a man that God has chosen, a man after God's own heart, who will maintain covenant to those that he has covenanted with. And therefore, being in covenant is a place of comfort and safety for Mephibosheth in particular. Now, although much of the ink that is spilled in this chapter focuses on the covenant breaking, it is screaming at us that there is a king who keeps covenant. Yes, that's David, but it's also one who is greater than David. And he's cut a covenant through the sacrifice of one man on a cross hung for all to see. And he will keep covenant with those who are his children. Just listen to two Verses of scripture from the New Testament. Here's Jesus speaking now. And this, uh, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's talking about the, the people that the Father has given him. They are kept by him. And then John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you read even verse 39 or 29, it says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. There is this, this covenant security that the, the greater David, Jesus himself, is promising to carry out, and he does, and he maintains his covenant promises to us. So we've seen then the, the, um, the, the seriousness of God's name. We've also seen, uh, as we began here, the kindness of God's revelation, but now we want to see the brutality of God's wrath. Now, friends, this is, this is not a pretty picture, is it? This is not one of those, one of those passages you come, you know, you, you dance around singing, isn't this great, and, you know, let's have a party. This is, this is a passage that you read, and you're like, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to respond to this. What we read here is foreign to 20th, 21st century minds, but we must see it through the lens of Scripture rather than through the lens of our 21st century rose-colored glasses. But however you look at it, you, you must agree, this is a horrible, horrible scene. We, we know what happened here. Saul had, had violated, a, an atonement must be made, and so some surrogates now have to take on that role of sacrifice because of his covenant breaking. Let's consider the details of verses eight and nine. Who were the victims? 
Well, they're described here as seven sons. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Armani, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzili, uh, the Moabite. So these are seven sons of Saul. How are they executed? Verse nine, and, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they were hanged, uh, they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. This word hanged literally means impaled. Now, this is not a pretty picture. I mean, hanging's bad enough. Um, but literally, it means that they were impaled. Um, oftentimes, around a city, they would, have these, they would have these pieces of timber that would stick out above the gates that came out at an angle with a sharp point on them. And what they would do is they would take the victims and they would impale them on the front of the city. So as you're walking into the city, you're like, uh, I better behave myself. That was the point. Now, I, my understanding is that impaling wasn't necessarily the method of execution, um, but it certainly was the method of dishonor and display. So they may have been killed, but then impaled. It doesn't matter. It was an ugly scene. It was a horrible, horrible scene. And these were the sons of Saul put on display for all to see that their father had violated covenant. When did this take place? Well, it says they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that's somewhere around April. That will come into play in just a little bit. Now, um, some things that we need to consider here. We read this account and we're confronted with its brutality and gore. And I would like to suggest to you that the brutality and gore is the primary application for us to consider here. And what I mean by that is this. We should be aghast of what's going on here. We should be uncomfortable. We should be wiggling in our chairs right now, seeking to, to wrestle this into the decency of all human beings category. And what is this text saying? It's saying this. Atonement is a horrible, brutal, and gory thing. Atonement is never nice. It is always, always gruesome. Friends, this was atonement. See, atonement is brutal. We need to see atonement for what it really is. Sadly, we in our American Christianity have relegated atonement to merely a, a, a doctrine to be believed, some kind of an abstract concept to be explained, um, a point of theology to be analyzed, um, or, or even we, we trivialize it. And it's, it's the end of the passion play, and, and, and Jesus is on the cross, and he's saying at the end as he's hanging there, he gives his last breath, I love you. And we, we miss the brutality and the gore of the atonement for what it really is. When Jesus died on the cross, it was to atone for our sins. An Israelite worshiper understood what atonement was like as they, they, they dragged their, their cow or their bullock to the temple to be slaughtered. They knew what was gonna happen. They knew it was gonna be a bloody day. That, that, that 
that animal was going to have its throat slit, the blood was going to be poured out in a specific way, the, it was going to be skinned, and the pieces were going to be chopped up into little pieces, that there was going to be blood everywhere. They understood what atonement meant. But for us, we're too refined for that. In fact, we'll take the word blood out of our hymnals because we just can't stomach it. Blood. God, God would never be a bloody God. Well, what kind of Bible have you been reading? The whole Old Testament is about atonement, atonement, atonement. That was the, the point of the sacrifices from Abel all the way through that one man who hung on the cross for us. Atonement was a horrible, brutal, and gory practice. And the question I have for you and for us This is just as much for me as it is for you, but have we gone soft on the atonement? We can be so consumed with the niceties of God's love and so refined, looking for a kinder and more gentle kind of faith and forget the brutality of the cross and its atonement. It was a brutal place to be when Jesus was hanging on that cross. There was nothing pretty about that. You didn't skip and dance. You didn't let your kids run around under the cross while Jesus was hanging there. It was a brutal and gory place. And perhaps our time in Gibeah today can wake us up to look at Golgotha years later and for us 2,000 years in the past, that place where Christ was crucified, Maybe it can help us see Golgotha with fresh eyes to see the shock of the drippy, bloody, smelly business of the atonement. Dale Davis sums it up well by saying, the stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. See, in our text, God's wrath is being poured out. And the only way that it can be stopped is by the atoning sacrifice of seven sons. And there's, a, there's a, just a connection there to what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. God's wrath is poured out and it is bloody. And there was a real atoning sacrifice that took place on that cross. Christ's death, his atonement, quenched the wrath of God once for all. Now, we move on in this passage and we see something surprising. The Gibeonites carry out their work quickly. The sons are taken, executed, impaled on stakes for all to see. And all this is happening right at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then the scene changes and we're confronted with behavior that is both heartening and heart-wrenching. We'll start with the heart-wrenching. That's what comes up first. Here's Rizpah, one of the mothers of the sons who comes on this scene. Just read Verse 10 with me. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth 
and spread it for himself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell from the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. Now why would God choose to include this kind of detail in this record of these events? He could have just said, and they were sacrificed and the land was restored. But he chooses to to bring us into the anguish and the heartache of what's going on here in the life of this mother by the name of Rizpah. Why does he do that? I would contend that what the the, the writer, is the narrator of the actual book, but also there's a greater narrator, and that's, that's God himself, he wants us to linger on the utter sadness of these events. To see the brutality of atonement, but also to be affected by the reality and the implications of it. Atonement is bloody, it's gruesome, it's sad, but in the midst of it all, there's a mother's love. Not just for her sons, but for all those who have been executed, and ultimately for the house of Saul. She stays from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens, the whole while seeking to fend off the birds and the beasts from feeding on the flesh of these boys. This is about as close as a mother can get to hell on earth. To watch not only your sons be sacrificed this way, but to, to see their bodies on display and to, to, to know that, that animals are trying to eat their flesh and to watch that flesh decay and to stay there the whole time and have as your responsibility to fend all those things off. And we really don't know exactly how long she was there, but the barley harvest was in April. The autumn rains came in October or November, so that's about five months A body does a lot of decaying in five months. That's a long time to be watching over a dead corpse. It's a long time to be on the precipice of hell. That's a long time even for any loving mother to be doting over the decaying flesh and bones of these seven sons. And Elizabeth's devotion just magnifies the horror of this atonement. The executions certainly were a public dishonor and they send shivers down our spines but the horrifying reality of of just being face to face with the decaying flesh of their sons and and fighting off the beast for, for five months. It's an incredible scene. And guys, it, it takes us to the place to say this, being on the wrong side of covenant with God is a gruesome reality not to be taken lightly. Let me say that again. Being on the wrong side of covenant with God is a gruesome reality not to be taken lightly. Hell is not a place where people hang out with their buddies. It is a gruesome, horrible place. It is pathetically sad and it's to be avoided at all costs. 
I just see this passage takes us further down and further down and further down. And then as we get down to the bottom here, there is this, there's this relief that we get. There's some comfort in this horrible sadness. The rains do come, which mark the end of both the famine in the land as well as the wrath of God upon Israel. And someone sends David a word about Rizpah. In verse 11 and following, here's what, we, here's what we have. David is so moved with compassion by her that not only does he, he gather the, 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 the remaining flesh and bones of, of these sons, but he also gathers the bones of Saul and of Jonathan and those who were hanged, and he, he takes them together with compassion as an act of tribute, and he takes them all to the hometown of Saul, the hometown of, of Benjamin, and he buries them there. Again, why does the writer include this last scene with Rizpah and David? Just two weeks ago, uh, as I was in, in Kiev, um, we, we stood in, in, in a cathedral in the, the Lavra, which is the um, second most holy site, apparently, in, in Orthodox Christianity, um, Orthodox Church, I should say. Um, and it's a, it's a site, it's a, it's a monastery, and, and they have a, a lot of chapels, beautiful places you can go, and they actually have caves where they have mummified bodies where people go, and they bow down and they pray and all this kind of stuff. And they have this one, this one cathedral in the midst of this, this whole complex. And you walk in, and the walls are just covered with these beautiful, ornate paintings. Right, depictions of Christ, depictions of the apostles in the midst of scenes from the gospels, depictions of, of the Old Testament prophets doing different things, all sorts of things going on, just beautiful. Saints, you know, as they would call them, uh, painted on the wall, places where people could go and they could pray to those particular saints. And you look up into the, to the ceiling and you'd see again, just painting all over the place and these ornate architecture and this beautiful gold that was just like crying out from all these different places. Um, and yet, um, there were no chairs. I don't know if you've ever been to a, an Orthodox church, there's no chairs. You walk in, you worship, and you stand the whole time. But one of the things that happens when there's no chairs in such a vast place is you feel like you're just this big. You feel so distant. The point of the cathedral is to say, God is magnificent. He is great. He is so far removed from us. And yes, and the problem is that that's where people are left. You see, God is this majestic God, but there's no way to get to him unless you're going to somehow go to a painting which represents some kind of a, of a saint and you're going to pray to that saint. And, and there's, this, there's this distance from God and the inability to access God, because they have this, this kind of altar thing in, in the, the cathedral where you, you know, it's like the Holy of Holies, you can't go beyond it, and you're stuck, and you're, you're, there's no way to get to him. And my, I, I just stood there, and, I, and I, I just took it all in. And I'm just thinking to myself, these people are in bondage. They see the magnificence of God, at least it's on display but they just don't have the ability to connect with him because they're so far removed from him. And I just thought to myself, this is, this is horrible. This is suffering. This is bondage. And there's part of me that just wanted to stay there and, and take it in some more because I just I wanted to feel uh, the, the, the sadness of the moment and the place and the kind of 
horrific situation these people are in because this is the Orthodox Church. This is the official church of the Ukrainian people. Now in the same way as I think when we come to this text, all God wants us to do here, friends, is this. To breathe in the sights and the sounds and the details of this text and be moved by the horror and sadness of what we take in. To leave us solemn before we run off trying to seek some way to apply this text to our own lives or to see ourselves in this text. God just wants us to, 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 to stand back and look and to see this is what atonement looks like. And I reflected on a psalm that J.D. was preaching, Psalm 90 in verse 11. And this is what it says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I mean, who really considers the wrath of God? Who walks around in this world and considers the wrath of God? And the implication is (laughs) very few people do. But today, friends, as we come to this passage, God wants us to take a good, hard look at the wrath of God through the lens of the atonement. Because it is the wrath of God poured out on Christ himself that he wants us to see. Man really doesn't want to dwell on God's wrath or his anger. He would rather just avoid it. He would would rather just to say, you know, ignorance is bliss. If I don't think about it, I don't have to worry about it. Or ignorance is also a means of self-justification. I mean, how can God keep me accountable for something I don't know? But 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14 is telling us that we should pay attention. We should stop and consider the wrath of God, not just on us, for we deserve it, but the wrath of God on Christ, for he did not. We tend to only see God's wrath and anger on us because of our sin, but we fail to see the great message of the gospel, the good news for us, that Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserved. He was our atonement. And this text is shouting at us to pay attention, to see the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ, to bow down in humility and worship him for his kindness to us. And here's the point of this text, that we, his children, would see that the beauty of the atonement can only be understood and applied properly through the brutality of the atonement. Let me say that again. The beauty of the atonement can only be understood and applied properly through the brutality of the atonement. See, the the atonement is not just theoretical. It is brutal. It is gory. It is harsh. So let it sink in. Let it guide your, your, get inside your senses. Let it invade your heart and your mind. Let it drive you to repentance and worship. Now notice that this text ends and after that, after that, it's a lot packed into that, God responded to the plea for the land. 
Identifying the guilt, providing the right atonement, brings restoration and blessing. And friends, it brings to mind a couple of songs that we sing here at Gateway and why. And I just want to end by reading the first stanza of each of them, and then one of them we're going to sing together. There is a fountain. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood, it's a flood of blood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains and just in case you didn't get it, they lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We don't sing that because it's a nice song. We don't sing that because it's, the content is, is happy and joyful. We sing that to remind ourselves of the atonement and the brutality of it and the benefit of it on we who believe in Christ as our Lord and Savior. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, would you allow us today pause and to take in through this this section of scripture that has revealed for us Israel's problem, the blood guilt, the need for atonement, the sacrifice that was made, the restoring of the land and and just the the brutality of all of that, Lord, how that just is is a picture that is pointing us, Lord, to what you have done for us on the cross. Would it, Lord, give us a, a better sense of the fact that our, our entering into the kingdom, our conversion was not just simply a word spoken, but it was a sacrifice made. It was a wrath poured out for us who did not deserve it but are the recipients of your mercy, your grace, your kindness, and your love. Give us eyes to see, Lord, and hearts to respond and to worship you, to bow down before you and to repent of our sin and our failure to acknowledge you as our great God and Savior because we've had such a diminished view of the atonement that was made for us on that cross. We ask this now in your precious holy name, amen.